Before we get started in our study today on the kindness and severity of God, I want to just remind you that the reason we do these studies is not just to become better informed. This is not just an informational study, nor is it an academic study so that we can boast or feel better about ourselves because we know more about the Bible. Uh, actually, there's only one purpose for these studies, and that is to help you grow into the image of Christ. A person asked me recently, what would you say is the essence of your purpose for your ministry and for both counseling and teaching? And I shared with them that was the same as Paul's sentiment in Galatians 4.19, where he said that he was laboring for them until Christ was formed in them. Galatians 4.19. Formed in you. That's what Christ formed in you. That's the point of this ministry. And so these studies are designed to help you understand better what the Word of God has to say about the character of God, about the character of the Trinity, about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, and about your place within the people of God, within the household of God, so that you are growing spiritually, you are beginning to display in your character, your thought, word, and deeds, uh, everything that has to do around the thought, word, and deed, and character of Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no greater privilege in the Christian life than becoming like Jesus. And we're not talking about just some mere imitation where we are just, you know, kind of bucking it up and acting like Jesus. We're talking about a spirit-produced reality in your life where your mind and your emotions and your conduct and your worldview and your desire to walk in uh, anonymity as opposed to selfish ambition your desire to uh, walk in humility as opposed to pride, as and then walk in absolute, unconditional obedience to the will of God as opposed to self-will run riot. So these are the goals here, is that you would have ever-increasing conformity into the image of Christ and be able to know the joy of that. The joy that, that to be a Christian is not only just to know Christ, but to become like Christ. Romans eight twenty eight through um, uh, 30 makes it very clear that that's the purpose of God's work in your life. The paramount purpose, the purpose for which God causes all things to work together for good, is that you'd be conformed into the image of his Son. So today we're going to... Uh, focus our study then on the kindness and severity of God. The kindness and severity of God. As it is displayed, of course, throughout all of Scripture. From Genesis through Revelation. Now, we're not going to study the full Revelation, of course. We're going to give you some portions out of the New Testament that help you understand the Greek word behind kindness and the Greek word behind severity and how that uh, unveils and uh, reveals to us the 
the character of God and how we are to display that. Uh, but we have to understand that the kindness and severity of God are both very important realities. Too often, the church has given itself over to displaying the kindness of God to the exclusion of the severity of God. Other churches have focused on the severity of God to the exclusion of the kindness of God. And what you get at that point is kind of a half-view, half-baked view of God. You don't quite understand the whole character of God. And as his children, he wants us to know who he is. In fact, it says in John 17, in the Jesus' high priestly prayer, that that eternal life is tied to our knowing him whom to know is eternal life in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So God wants you to know him, and he wants you to know him both in um, your, your understanding of him, uh, your view of him, but he wants you to understand also conceptually, not just conceptually, I should say, but experientially, existentially, so that you know him in your own character. You can see the character of God developing in your own thought, words, and deeds, in your conduct. So the kindness and severity of God. Now we're going to break this up into a couple of sessions so that we don't overwhelm you. So let's go ahead and get started then. I'm going to read a text, Romans 11, Romans chapter 11, verse 22, from which we get our term, the kindness and severity of God. There Paul says in Romans 11, 22, <clears throat> Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So, in reference to this, Paul is referring here to the uh, community uh, of faith, the Christian community in Rome at the time, that had begun to split off into a Jewish church on one side of town and the Gentile church on the other side of town, and this was abhorrent to Paul. This was this is this is just unacceptable to Paul, and so he's writing his letter to the Romans, the church at Rome, to help them understand that there is no longer a Jewish. Uh, ethnicis, ethnic, ethnicity, that's what I'm trying to say, <laughs> ethnicity that is uh, applicable in the gospel. Neither is there a Greek or Gentile ethnicity in the gospel. It's irrelevant. There is no Jew and there is no Gentile. There is only one people of God in Christ, one new humanity. And to begin to go back on and rely upon Jewish tradition or Gentile tradition, or to take uh, some kind of a one-up stance, whether you're a Gentile over Jews or Jews over Gentiles, was a trap of the flesh. It was a, a trap. is intended to divide the church. And if this was to allow to occur, uh, Christianity would have deteriorated into just some kind of a, uh, a Jewish sect or another uh, Gentile uh, Greek 
wisdom religion. And, and of course, the apostle is not going to let that happen. So he is approaching this from giving them the full, whole counsel of God and then calling them back to accept one another on the basis of who they are in Christ. And he's reminding in Romans 9, 10, 11, he's reminding the Jews of Rome, the Roman Christians who happen to have a Jewish heritage, that their heritage is not something that should afford them any kind of one-up position on the Gentiles or over the Gentiles. In fact, he said in Romans 10 that although the Jews had a zeal for God, Romans 10 too, that was not according to knowledge, for, fear, for not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, says the apostle. So he's making it very clear that yes, they have a Jewish heritage. Yes, they have a, a thousand years of lit law, mosaic law. They have traditions. They ha there's the temple that was, may have been still standing at this time, um, depending on when you think this letter was written. And so it's very important to understand then that the uh, Jewish mindset was still had a tendency to lean into their, their heritage as the people of God, the chosen people of God, the Mosaic law and their traditions and their ethnicity as the uh, basis for their newfound faith in Christ when that wasn't the case at all. Because the Gentile Christians didn't share that history. So Paul's calling them back together again, and he's helping them realize that in verse 22 of Romans 11, he wants them to see both the kindness of God of calling them into the gospel and the severity of God against Israel's lack of faith. That Israel, the, the Jewish heritage, was one of unbelief, not anything to be proud of. And then he warns the Gentiles not to get proud either of the fact that as a branch has been broken off a uh, an olive tree in order that a wild branch could be grafted in to the vine or to the tree. So also, just because the Gentiles have been included doesn't mean that they should take a one-up position over the Jews. So let's read it again. Behold, then the kindness and severity of God. Two things. To those who fell. How did they fall? They fell because they did not act in faith but as if it were by works. To those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also would be cut off. So we see then that the kindness of God is the basis of our salvation. Not anything that we did. Not any religious heritage. Not any ethnic or religious heritage but the kindness of God. And that to believe on any other basis that we come to God other than the kindness and the grace of God through faith in his Son is to acquire the severity of God. And we'll talk about that more in this uh, second session. 
But today, let's look closer now than at the kindness of God. The kindness of God. Now, if you're into this kind of thing, the kindness, the word kindness is from the Greek word from Strong's number 5544, 5544. You should all be into this much, and that is that the Greek word here is krestatas, krestates, or krestatas, however you want to pronounce it. So let's just do a little word study here, as well as some investigation into where this word is found, so that we have a better idea of the kindness of God. What do we mean by the kindness of God? This is very important, because remember, the purpose of our study is not just to glean information. It's not just to study academics. The purpose here is to grow and to grow spiritually and to come to understand the character of our Heavenly Father more so that as we walk daily as his children and we live out our lives as Jesus lived, we are better aware on a truly experiential and existential level what it means to be in fellowship with the Father and with the Son through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, let's look at a, a couple of other examples in the New Testament where this word krestatas is translated as kindness, where it shows up. Um, Romans 2.4. Romans 2.4, where Paul has just described the character of all of fallen humanity in Romans 1, the desperate, deceived, self-deluded character of fallen humanity. And so he's turning now to the Jews again in Romans chapter 2, and he says, Therefore you are without excuse, O man, everyone who passes judgment. See, remember, the Jews were falling back onto their Jewish heritage and then in the law, in the temple, in the uh, the oracles of God, and all the favors, all the benefits that, that they enjoyed, truly enjoyed by being um, uh, the the stewards of the revelation of God historically, and they were beginning to rely upon that as an, as a, a means to go one up on the Gentiles. But Paul's exploding that here. He's saying, therefore, you are without excuse. Oh man, everyone who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you presume this, O oh man, speaking to the Jewish community now, who passes judgment on those who practice such things? and then does the same things, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, he wants them to understand that we all stand in equal um, desperation due to the depravity of fallen human nature, and we all stand as equal beneficiaries of the gospel, whether we're Jew or Gentile. And listen to verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? Christatas. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God 
leads you to repentance. And then in verse 5, But because your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each to each according to his works. This is scary stuff. He's saying here quite clearly, you may have a long religious heritage. You may have a long religious uh, history. You may be, in our case, it would be like if we were third or fourth or fifth generation uh, of of members in a denomination or a local church. And we had begun to ascribe merit to that. We become dull and forget that we came to Christ on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, tied directly to the kindness of God. That our repentance was a result of the kindness of God. Not because we were so religious or because we were inherently virtuous over those who didn't repent. In other words, Salvation comes to us at God's initiation. And kindness, the kindness of God, precedes our repentance. We are repentant, we are penitent, because of God's previous kindness. If God had not moved upon our hearts and minds, if God had not first worked on our heart and will, we would not have ever repented on our own. This means that that regeneration, being born of the Spirit, precedes saving faith. There is a mindset that's very common still in Christianity that somehow there are certain things that we do and then God responds to us by saving us. That the sinner just suddenly decides they want to become a Christian And so they choose to believe. They choose Jesus. And a lot of this is tied to the old evangelism of the decision crusades. The hour of decision, Billy Graham used to call it. As if you you came to Christ based upon your own personal decision to do so. And therefore, God was so impressed, he sent the Holy Spirit and you were born again. That's not what the Bible teaches. John chapter 6 is very clear that no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. In other words, salvation is of the Lord. It's never of us. God initiated our salvation. He sustains us in our salvation in Christ, and he perseveres. We will persevere by that same grace through that same faith. So it's the kindness of God here in Romans 2, 4, that brings us to repentance. Let's look at another, Romans 3.12. I won't expound quite so much on each one. We don't have time for that. But Romans 3.12, just flip a page here. Romans 3.12, now he's again, he's speaking of the character of fallen humanity. And he says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There's not one who does Christatas. In this case, it's translated as good. There is not one who does kindness. There is not even one. Now, is it possible for an unbeliever 
to show kindness, of course it is. It may come with all kinds of agenda. It may be because they're trying to get something out of you. But it is conceivable that, that even in our fallenness, we can show kindness. But God is saying here that the kind of kindness that he requires, we cannot show. This is very important. There's a distinction then between human kindness and divine kindness. And God requires of his creation to be like him, especially of humanity, to be like him and his kindness, most particularly of his own children in Christ. So he's saying of humanity here, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. So Christatus here is translated good, but could also be translated kindness. It just doesn't flow as well in English. There, who, there is none who does kindness. There is not even one, he said. So within all of fallen humanity, the kindness of God is foreign. While people may show kindness to each other who don't know Christ, who are outside of the household of God, it is nothing compared to the kindness of God. Let's look at another. <clears throat> the kindness of God is foreign to fallen human nature. In 2 Corinthians 6, 6, Paul speaks of the kindness of God as being a characteristic of a genuine minister of the gospel. He's speaking of the characteristics here in 2 Corinthians 6 of what it means to be an apostle. And indeed, for all ministers of the gospel. And he says that his ministry is in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in Christatus, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in unhypocritical love. Now, there's a whole list of virtues and afflictions and persecutions that the apostle has gone through that he points as his credentials. He points to these things as his credentials that validate the fact that he is a true apostle. And you can read those on at your own. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 3 through 10, Paul lays out this whole um, uh, display of things that he's gone through, things that he's lived with, both good and bad, but come together to validate him as an apostle, and in this case, the kindness of God. The kindness of God. Now, this is important because now, as we turn to Colossians chapter 2, this applies to all of us now. Actually, Colossians chapter 3, let me see here. Yeah, Colossians chapter 3, Verse 12. This is where it comes home for you and I together. We're, we're not apostles. I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. Even though Paul did experience a lot of what he experienced only because he was a Christian. Nobody said, Paul, we're going to per persecute you because you're an apostle. They said, we're going to persecute you because you are a threat. You realize that? And let me put it this way. <clears throat> For a professing Christian, there's only two paths. You can either live like the world 
and then be labeled by the world, and by God, by the way, as a hypocrite. Or you can live like Jesus and be labeled by the world a threat, though you're labeled by God as a beloved child. So let me say that again. Every professing Christian, if they live by it like the world, is going to be labeled by the world and by God as a hypocrite. That's your first option. And a lot of people choose that because they want to escape persecution. They want to over-identify with the world. And ultimately, if they start living like the world, the world's going to look at them and say, Hey, I thought you were a Christian. just turns out you're just a hypocrite. You're no different than us. You're just the way we are. And God says, That's right. You are a hypocrite. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work, you workers of iniquity, you who act in lawlessness. Very sobering to realize. We can either live like the world and be labeled a hypocrite, or we can live like Jesus and be labeled a threat by the world. Though we will be labeled a beloved, holy child by the Father. So the only real option, if we're awake and sane, is to live like Jesus. And this is something we all must take very soberly. And in Paul's case, he was living like Jesus. And he was suffering like Jesus. Though he also had the joy. It's a pain-filled joy existence. So when the world and all its shiny objects and all of its false teachers who tell you, oh, yeah, it's no problem. Not only should you live like the world, God wants you to live like the world. Jesus died so you could have all this good stuff all the time. You could have your best life now. You'll be labeled ultimately by the world and by God as a hypocrite. Or you can live like Jesus and be labeled by the world as a threat. And depending to the degree that you desire to live a godly life after the pattern and model of Jesus, you will suffer persecution, rejection, perhaps even severe persecution, and perhaps even martyrdom because you are a threat to this world in its rebellion. You expose it, and no one wants to be exposed. Living in the light of Jesus exposes the darkness. And people like the darkness because their deeds are evil, says John chapter 3. But you will be, you will be labeled a holy and beloved child of God by the Father. And on that note, let's look at Colossians 3.12, where we read this. So then, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, Christatas, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
bearing with one another, and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. So if you're living like Jesus, the Father will label you among his elect, holy, and beloved, because that's who you really are. That's who you were the moment you were born of the Spirit. That's who you became. And as you're working that out into your life, Paul is saying now, in it is indicative of you to live a certain way. And the imperative then follows the indicative. What do we mean by indicative? Well, indicative simply means that which is by nature. That which is typical. A bird flies. A bird, it's indicative of a bird to fly. It's indicative of a horse to run. It's indicative of certain parts of creation to act like they are created by nature to do. And you, who are in Christ, it is indicative for you, who are an elect child of God, holy and beloved, to put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, knowing what we know so far in this study, what is he saying to us here about compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? Think about it for a moment. Is he saying, you know, try to just buck up your human capacity for natural compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and try to just get along. No, he's saying, I want you to live out the very character of God in your interpersonal relationships with one another. I want you to show the divine heart of compassion, the divine useful kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Remember, the kindness of God is the Christatus is a useful kindness. It's a, as opposed to useless kindness. <laughs> a useless kindness is just a warm feeling towards someone. God's kind of kindness, which is useful kindness, according to the word study, means that he deals with us on the basis of our needs. Useful kindness means meeting real needs in God's way and God's timing. Like the old hymn, he looked beyond our fault and saw our need. We really don't have any words in English to fully communicate what the Greek meaning is here for God's kindness. It's really beyond that. It's transcendent. But we can obey it. We can work it out in our experience. We don't have to fully comprehend the meaning of divine kindness in order to work it out because this is something that the Spirit produces in us. So we're to live out the kindness of God. Well, let's draw this part one of this study to a close by just reminding you that the kindness of God is something that meets needs, deals with people on a basis of their true need. For us, our truest need, our most important need, 
was for reconciliation with God. That was our most important need. And not just a partial recon uh, reconciliation, not just a partial atonement, but a full and complete and all-sufficient atonement that Jesus, as our high priest, did for us. He secured our salvation. There are still teachers today who treat the gospel as if Jesus came to make your salvation possible, and it's really up for you now to close the deal. You have to act, you have to do this, you have to do that. In extreme versions in the Roman Catholic Church, you have a, an initial baptism of grace, and then you have to spend the rest of your life trying to secure that through sacraments and, and church attendance and uh, confession and other rituals and rites and practices. And It's a false gospel, quite frankly. It's a false gospel. No, the greatest need we have was for a full and all-sufficient atonement. Well, your sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. And the atonement made, made it available for you now to enter the presence of God, not as some fear-trembling sinner, but as a child of the Father, holy and beloved, who no longer approach him on the basis of fear. We draw near to God now. We come into his presence as children who cry, Abba, Father, because the spirit of his son dwells in us. We share in Christ's own relationship with the Father. That was our greatest need. And it was the kindness of God that looked at fallen humanity and dealt with it based upon the need, the great need. So God looked upon you when you were in your sins and he dealt with you based upon his kindness and saw your need for reconciliation to him at a time when you didn't even know how to spell the word reconciliation. You had no desire for reconciliation. You had turned your back towards God. You were moving in the opposite direction of reconciliation. Yet, based on his kindness and his mercy alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, he drew you to, he sent his son into the world to live and die on your behalf, to rise again, to now sit at his right hand with that work completely finished and intercede ever lives to intercede for you so that you would be drawn. He then drew you to his son. He gave you the gift of faith. He gave you the birth of the spirit out from which came the gift of faith. You beheld the beauty of Christ. The kindness of God led you to repentance and you are now his beloved child. You are no longer an Adam. You are no longer in the realm of the flesh. God saved you not just to keep you out of hell, though out of hell you will stay, nor just to get you into heaven, though into heaven you will be. No, he saved you to unite to unite you to his son. That's the measure of God's kindness. And that's the kindness that we are to show each other is God's kindness in our interpersonal relationships with one another.
We're not just a, as Christians, show natural human affection, but divine affection, divine kindness, divine compassion, gentleness, and patience. We're to do with each other as the Lord deals with us and nothing less. Well, in our next episode, we'll take a look at the um, severity of God and who does God reserve that severity for? We've gotten some hint of it already in this um, chapter, in this study. But we will look at that more clearly so that you can be clear as to who that is for and why it is. It's actually very, a beautiful thing. God's severity is a display of his beauty. It also, it's, it's quite amazing. It's a severity we will all understand much better. Let me just assure you, though, as we close, <clears throat> that the severity of God is not reserved for wayward Christians. The severity of God, the wrath of God, is not on your calendar because you are in Christ. And then we'll talk next time about who the severity of God is revered for. You'll understand that better. You'll understand the heart of the Father better. And you'll understand him in a way that deepens your understanding of your fellowship and your place with him. May the Lord strengthen you and keep you in his grace always. Amen.